You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 217. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We have a busy show planned for you this week. I will start with a recent Your Stock Artake question. I'm going to finish that off on Algoma Steel Group Inc., symbol ASTL on the TSX, one of Canada's leading steel producers, which just announced its fiscal year 2023 results, alongside some cost overruns for a transformational electric arc furnace project. Aaron will answer a viewer question on energy, transportation, and midstream service provider Pembina Pipeline Corporation, Corporation symbol PPL on the TSX, following the company's first quarter results and look into its current valuations and growth prospects. Brett will answer a follow-up question on a company he looked at on this show in this past December. Pluralock Securities, Inc., symbol P-L-U-R on the TSX Venture, an identity-centric cybersecurity company that has shown strong revenue growth, but profitability has eluded the business. Last but not least, Brennan answers a listener question on cruise ship giant Carnival Corporation, symbol C-C-L on the New York Stock Exchange, which after being devastated in the pandemic has had a strong run-up year-to-date but was hit today after it released its Q2 numbers. Brennan will let you know why and whether it offers value at its current price today. So let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-hosts, Aaron and the killer bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? How was your weekend? Anything interesting? I went to Nickelback. <laughs> Nickelback. That was, that was good. Uh, yep. Yes, you yeah. did. Uh, Look at this no. photograph. Oh, please but, sing uh, for us, Brennan. No, so did they, I mean, they was, just made their way? Like they started touring no. 20 years ago and they just made their way to Saskatoon? The, the music finally, just hit I haven't heard Saskatoon. that name in a while. It's, yeah. That band goes back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even when we were in Vegas, I saw that they were going to be in Vegas too, I think, this summer as well. So mm-hmm. you know, they're, uh, at least they came to Saskatchewan before Vegas, I think. Uh, but nice. no, the concert was good. They're good from, energy. Where are they from? They're from Alberta. Hannah Prairie. Yeah, Hannah, Alberta. Yeah. And uh, okay. that's kind of... Like the energy was so good in the building just because like they were playing the prairie roots and uh yeah you know, so they, they, oh, they, 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 they played out people you guys, your age right? or uh i'd say it was mixed. my age. yeah it was mixed it was uh yeah. in their 70s it was, it was or 80s it's kind of all around a lot of young yeah, kids too i just looked I'm it up 80. the band is actually formed before i was born brennan <laughs> really yeah know. nice but they're not cool enough yet to be like classic rock. That's the thing. So, you know, it's, 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 they're in the, they're kind of tweens or something. In that I can't even range. say I really like their music even, but uh, it was just fun to go with my friends. And uh, with the, what else, with the what boys? else can you do in Saskatchewan? You know, that's the thing. Not, not Watch much. your dog run away for two weeks. Yeah. Did you say your dog ran away for two weeks? Oh, actually, it's funny because <laughs> I went to, uh, okay. I did actually <laughs> go to a comedy show, Jimmy Carr. 
Oh, really? Oh, guys familiar? Yeah, yeah, I know. So I do remember. And he mentioned Saskatoon. Well, he was just here as well. I'm yeah, yeah, because yeah, he did it. He did a Canadian tour, so he mentioned Saskatoon, and he, he said Uh-oh. some joke about how, like, Uh-oh. you know, some people have this idea that that Saskatoon is kind of like the Paris of the Prairies. What? And then he's laughed. He's like, he's like, nobody who's been to Paris would ever say that, right? No. And he's like, you don't. Nobody strolls down the Champs-Élysées and is like, this looks like Saskatoon. Ah, reminds me of Saskatoon. Yeah. So yeah, oh, a couple of Brennan days might say that. No, I don't good. think I would. Trust say me, Saskatoon that. got off easy. <laughs> Virtually everything else he talked about, he yeah. uh, he laid into a lot harder. So, yep. Yeah. What about That's you, Ryan? Good, yeah. Any comedy. <clears throat> I had I had my daughter's birthday this weekend. Well, it was her yes. actual birthday. We'd had other you know birthdays leading up to it, but uh, it was good. We we went bowling. Just took out like the my parents and Candace's parents, and then uh, but uh, Eden ended up with some kind of stomach flu from something we ate. Her and mom. So there was oh, no. uh, last night of barfing. It was pretty Yay. awesome. That really <laughs> good eighth fun. birthday, right? Yeah. No, I was okay. They're okay now. So. It was oh, fun good. times. That's we'll good. have a barbecue hour. coming up too. So should yeah. be good. Yeah, hopefully just probably just something we ate. And I'm not going to say what restaurant we went to because they're a massive sponsor of this show. So we won't say that. <laughs> or they could be. Anyways, I'm just kidding. We should Let's just get to the show. There's nothing else we want to get to other than nope. Brennan later will discuss how he hates cruising. And he'll talk about yeah. Carnival Cruise. So we'll segment. get into that. Yeah, that's yeah. a teaser. All right, I, I might as well start on Al- Algoma Steel Group. This is following up a question. Uh, it was a two-part. There was a question uh, that involved Algoma as well. We've talked about it in the past. Symbol ASTL on the TSX trades around $9.61, $995 million market cap. They are based in Sault Ste. Marie. Algoma is one of Canada's leading steel producers. The company has a production capacity of 2.8 million tons with products that include include hot rolled rolled coil, cold rolled rolled coil, and plate steel. I love anything with coils in it, so that that's I'm I'm loving that. <clears throat> so this past Wednesday, Algoma <laughs> reported its Q4 fiscal year 2023 results that came in slightly above street estimates, but well below fiscal year 2022 numbers across the board. The company released its Q1 fiscal year 2024 guidance that was well below the previous year. Additionally, Algoma provided updated budgetary estimate, estimates for its electric arc furnace or EAF project that include significant cost and time overruns. The announcement was a surprise as in late January of this year, Algoma reported the project was both on time and on budget. And now we find out it is not. Let's look at it quickly at the numbers, the Q4 fiscal year 2023 numbers. Consolidated revenue down 28% to $677 million. Net loss was $20.4 million compared to net income of $242.9 million in the prior year quarter. Uh, adjusted EBITDA, $47.9 million. That's a margin of 7.1% compared to $334.4 million or a margin of 35.5% in the prior year quarter. So a massive shrinking there. Cash flow from operations dropped 78.5%. Shipments, however, were actually up in the quarter, 571 
thousand tons uh, compared to about 547,000 tons in the prior year quarter. Now, the weaker year numbers were largely driven by lower steel prices. Revenue per ton of steel sold was $1,185 compared to $1,721 in Q4 of fiscal year 2022. Um, and if you look at the cost overruns we talked about in that EAF project, Algoma's project will feature a pair of arc electric arc furnaces that will replace the plant's existing blast furnace, coke oven batteries, and basic oxygen steel making operations. They will be far more efficient and should lead to better cash flows over the long term. Now, management surprisingly increased the budget for this project by 125 to 175 million. That would be total project cost of between 825 to 875 million. That is up from what they estimated just in January at about 703 million. So that re represents 59 to 83% increase over the of the remaining capital yet to be contracted last quarter. Uh, it appears that the detailed engineering work for the project was completed about six weeks ago and Algoma received bids that carried higher than anticipated costs. Additionally, spot supply chain disruptions, particularly related to micro processing chips, are expected to delay the commissioning of the project until the end of calendar 2024 compared to the initial timeline, which was about mid calendar year 2024. So current valuations very quickly. On a trailing basis, Algoma looks attractive. PE is 5.4. EV to EBITDA is 1.9. However, estimates for fiscal year 2025, so two years out, earnings and EBITDA are significantly lower right now. Those are the estimates from analysts out there. I'd call them guesstimates at this point, but they're for significantly lower results. The balance sheet quickly, cash 247.4 million, debt 122.7, so net cash of 124.7 million. Our take here, the electric arc furnace project appears to be a smart one, but the cost overruns and the launch delays are unfortunate near, near to midterm for the company. While management stated that internal cash generation and an anticipated working cap release of around 100 to 150 million should be more than sufficient to fund uh, Algoma's capital requirements. Even with those cost overruns, we do note, though, that the company just filed a base shelf prospectus, allowing them to raise additional capital. So the issuance of shares at depressed prices is a potential threat to keep an eye on for existing shareholders over the next year. Algoma, as with all commodity sensitive businesses, is highly sensitive to the pricing of its underlying commodity, in this case, steel, for its profitability. The balance sheet is currently solid, which is a must. It's solid, which is a must for investing in a business such as this. But it could move into a net debt position funding that project dependent upon the pricing environment for steel. If one believes that steel is headed high over the next three to five years, as the more efficient operations are brought online, Algoma is interesting, but projecting the price of steel or most commodities is often tantamount to guesswork. As a result, it remains speculative as an investment, and given the near-term cost overruns, uncertainty in the economic outlook generally, we are not buying Algoma at present. Yeah, and you make a good point. I mean, really looking at a trailing P multiple on a cyclical commodity-sensitive stock yeah. is, is irrelevant, and this goes for oil and gas, goes for mining. Yeah. Um, you're always with any stock looking forward, of course, but with some companies, there's, there is some certainty 
in the in the revenue and the earnings that they're going to be able to produce over the upcoming year or some stability in the financial performance whereas in a commodity sensitive stock there's 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 nearly none so what i always look for i mean if i am going to do research on a commodity sensitive stock uh, one the balance sheet i i want to see minimal debt because you just don't know what kind of position the company is going to be in to service that debt if commodity prices go down um obviously i want to have some assurance or some belief based on my research that the supply demand fundamentals of that specific commodity are favorable. Um, and then beyond that, I want to see that the company is doing something to take advantage of a situation by say expanding capacity, as opposed mm -hmm. to just being a commodity price taker with the, the earnings and the, and the share price are going to go up and down with the underlying commodity. In some cases, you can find other ways to invest in the commodity more directly as opposed to through a stock. Yeah. For sure. And, and and that is one of the pluses with Algoma. They're, they do seem to be modernizing the facility, bringing more capacity mm -hmm. online, and particularly it should be more efficient as well. So, I mean, in a, well, if you saw a steel pricing boom again, or you saw a positive environment for them going forward, that would definitely be a plus. They'll be more profitable. But you can see with those numbers that I just ran through for that quarter, how fluctuative they can be. They actually had an increase in output there in the quarter and the results were down tremendously across the board. And that's just the pricing of steel, really. I mean, they had some other, you know, cost issues in the quarter as well, but primarily it's the price of steel. And, you know, that can translate to any commodity-based business. And that's why it's very difficult to forecast cash flows for these businesses. Uh, and you're better, you know, if you're going to, it's hard to invest in them over the long term. It's more of a trade. So, you know, you know, Aaron is correct. If you're going to look at these, make sure you have a, a business that has a good solid balance sheet. Often net cash is best. And uh, then, you know, some impetus for growth, you know, that, uh, but then all of that can be said and the commodity price can go against you and you're going to do poorly that year, likely in that investment. But, you know, if you have those things, at least you will survive for the next up cycle. That's what we're looking for. If somebody is looking to invest in these type of investments, pretty crazy that they fifty nine percent overrun in costs is is what you said. I'm not in the uh, additional capital, yeah, and it'll be capital. that'll be at minimum. It'll, it could be above that, but that's the additional added ca capital. It went from about seven hundred and three to up to uh, I think it's eight hundred and something, right? So so yeah, it's about a hundred and fifty off the seven hundred and three million mm -hmm. in terms of cost overruns, but on the additional capital, right, that's still left out there. It, yeah, it is 53 to almost 80% um, overrun. So, you know, it is quite surprising that it's that much more, particularly when they were on time, on budget, and boasting that kind of at the start of January or the end of January. So not a significant time period and not a period where we've actually seen commodities go significantly higher. You know, over that period, they were already at that level. So there should have been... You would think potentially some idea that there could have been a cost increases, particularly of that magnitude in January of this year. And as I understand, they weren't stated at that time. So and mm -hmm. they kind of just came out this past week. Yeah. Like I also, just to go on a little bit longer on it, um, I wrote a report for clients, a monitor report on the company um, back in January. And as well, when steel prices were really, really high, they ended up buying back a substantial amount of shares. I believe it was about 28% of all of their issued and outstanding shares. So, I mean, it was nice that I they're- I think it was significantly capital. higher than they're priced right now, right? 
Yes, um, I believe so. At uh, nine dollars and seventy-five cents U.S. per share. So, yeah, That's U.S. Like, so we're talking US. nine dollars uh, Canadian right now, right? Nine yeah. something in that range. So. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's share buyback, but you know, if you just bought in the market that. today, um, you'd be buying at a significant discount to that price. So, yeah. Was it a good use of funds? That's I a mean, good point. We'll find out over the long term, I, you know, yeah. depending on how well that project comes on and how efficient they are. So, mm-hmm. company to look at. Certainly not the worst like steel producer that you can see. There's certainly more debt heavy businesses out there that we wouldn't touch, but, you know, Again, you're just going to be beholden to the price of the commodity to a large degree. Now, let's look at the a midstream service provider, energy transportation company. It's Pembina Pipeline. Aaron's really excited to get to this one. Well, this you? is a company that I, I have looked at several times in the past Yeah, um, as part of our income research because it is a, a dividend payer and a high yield stock. Um, but we recently got a question from Darlene. Uh, Darlene wanted us to take a look at Pembina Pipeline, um, specifically, I think the recent financial performance and the guidance, um, and then also compare the company to Enbridge. So I'll, I'll make a couple comments comparing Pembina to Enbridge at the end of the segment here. I'm going to focus mostly on the company and what they're doing and what we think about it. But uh, here we go anyways. Pembina Pipeline, it trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol PPL, about $40 per share. It's a 30 billion market cap company, and it pays a yield of almost 7%, so 6.7% right now. Uh, what they are is energy transportation and midstream services uh, in North America. So these assets include liquids and natural gas pipelines, gas gathering, processing, um, oil and natural gas liquids, infrastructure and logistics services. Also a growing export terminals business as well, um, exporting LNG off of the West Coast of Canada. So looking at the uh, the geographic breakdown of the company, uh, they're primarily focused in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin, um, northeastern BC, as well as Alberta, a little bit of exposure in the Bakken in the US and in Saskatchewan, um, and then as well, um, the LNG facility uh, on the west coast of British Columbia. Now, one of the things when we're looking at uh, these midstream companies or these energy transportation companies is we want to know what the revenue structure is in terms of, you know, do they have commodity price sensitivity? Um, is it is it contracted cash flow? So looking at, at Pembina's revenue breakdown, they have about 65 to 70% uh, coming from take or pay or cost of service contracts. So take or pay basically means they get paid whether or not they provide the service. Um, so they have customers that are essentially you know, paying them a consistent stream of income, regardless of the usage or the volumes. Uh, there's fee for service. So these are serv- this is where they get paid for the service, but there's not commodity price sensitivity. And then they estimate about 10 to 20% of the business is commodity price exposed. So by commodity, uh, about 40% is crude oil and condensates about 25% natural gas and 35% natural gas liquids. And then on a divisional basis, 55 to 60% of the company is uh, focused on the pipeline segment, 25 to 35 on facilities, and then 10 to 20% on marketing and new ventures. So this would be the segment of the business primarily that would have the commodity price exposure. Not, nothing really uh, phenomenal about the company's share price performance over the last five years. 
Uh, if you've been investing in this company, you primarily, depending on where you've purchased it, you've primarily been getting any investment return from the, the dividend yield. Uh, pretty much flat with a fair bit of volatility over the five-year period of time. And, you know, this is not unusual for a lot of these energy infrastructure companies. They really have been primarily uh, income plays. Uh, and this is especially true over the last year. Some of them have come under pressure because as a dividend income play, uh, you are, of course, having to now compete with higher bond yields in a higher interest rate environment. So that puts some pressure. But uh, these Pembean has not done poorly too poorly over the last year here. Um, you know, really just, just about flat, flat share price performance. So what we're really looking at from most of these energy infrastructure stocks, these utility style defensive contracted energy infrastructure stocks is, you know, are we getting a yield? Are we getting a, a good yield? Is that dividend growing consistently year after year after year? Uh, do they have the cash flow growth in the balance sheet? and the payout ratio to support the sustainable dividend and the sustainable dividend growth. And then beyond that, any capital appreciation you get is really just additional upside potential. So the company recently put out their Q1 2023 financial results. Uh, not really a great showing. 18% um, decline in net revenue, about a 6% decline in adjusted EBITDA and adjusted cash flow per share was down about 9.5%, 9.4% to $1.15. And the adjusted cash flow per share is really one of the main metrics that we're going to look at. This is this is what, you know, is really telling you what the company is producing in terms of growth on a per share basis. This is how they they pay their dividend. This is how they fund their capital expenditure campaign. Um, so, you know, we, we, play, we pay close attention to that per share number. Of course, adjusted EBITDA revenue, those numbers are not unimportant, um, but you know, growing the size of the business overall does not necessarily help investors unless you're also growing the business on a per share basis. And then dividends increased about 3.2% compared to the previous year. Uh, last year in 2022, uh, net revenue growth of just under 8%, adjusted EBITDA was up 9%. And then uh, adjusted cash flow per share, basically flat, up 0.4%. So not a lot of growth there, basically flat performance on that per share line that I told you to pay a lot of attention to. Um, common share dividends, you know, basically up about 1.2%. So it's, um, it's a situation where, you know, certainly there's going to be some negative pressure on the company from higher interest rates. Uh, those are not captured, of course, in the adjusted EBITDA line. This is earnings before interest taxes. So, you know, that's another reason why we want to pay close attention to the adjusted cash flow per share, because you are as an investor, as a common share investor, um, that's really the value that is created from you is that per share profitability. Now, just taking a look at the breakdown of the company going forward, the balance sheet devaluation. So one of the things Darlene wanted us to look at was the guidance. Uh, Pembean is looking at um, 2023 full year adjusted EBITDA guidance in the range of 3.5 to 3.8 billion. So that's basically about flat or slightly, maybe slightly lower compared to uh, EBITDA for the full year of, of 2022. Um, again, not a lot of growth. We would, with that flat EBITDA number, expect more than likely to see a continued decline in the cash flow per share as well um, for this current year. 
When we look at the balance sheet, one of the ways we're going to analyze this is on a debt to adjusted EBITDA basis. Uh, Pembina's figure here, leverage ratio is 3.6 times. I would consider this to be a healthy financial position. No concerns about the leverage ratio here, particularly for a company that is producing stable cash flow um, with the, the vast majority of the revenues contracted in nature. Uh, valuation, trading at about nine times adjusted, just a little under nine times adjusted cash flow from operations. This, I would say, is about fair value in the market. I mean, I wouldn't consider it expensive. I wouldn't consider it particularly cheap. It's certainly good value, reasonably good value compared to the market overall. Um, but of course, we're not seeing a lot of growth come out of the company. So um, we would just give this a fair value, you know, say that this is about fair value. Uh, dividend growth. Um, 2.3% uh, was the increase in 2023. Uh, they did increase the dividend 3.5% in 2022. Uh, so this is this is good. I mean, this is the, this is the type of company that we're expecting to see consistent year over year dividend growth every year, and and it has been able to do that for the past um, more than a decade. Uh, so so decent, albeit low single digit dividend growth, which is again what we would expect from a larger uh, energy infrastructure stock like this. Uh, payout ratio fifty five percent of adjusted cash flow from operations. That's healthy. We consider that sustainable. No concerns there. So just in conclusion, you know, on the positive side, what you're getting from this company is you're getting what should be stable operations, largely contracted cash flow and a healthy balance sheet. And this supports that attractive dividend yield um, and also the, the dividend growth. Now, we, we want to see that dividend growth supported by underlying growth in cash flow per share. We've not really seen growth in cash flow per share for the last year or so, um, but you know there there are going to be ebbs and flow there 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 are going to be um ups and downs there so it's 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 certainly not a situation where we're concerned but generally speaking we want to see that dividend growth uh reflect the growth in the cash flow per share now um on somewhat of the negative side growth in cash flow per share has stalled as we've talked about expecting flat ebitda in 2023 um also you know, this is not, Pembina is not as diversified as some of the other names. Darlene had asked about a comparison to Enbridge. Um, and one of the things about Enbridge, so a lot of the fundamentals between Pembina and Enbridge are going to be fairly similar. Uh, Enbridge pays a yield of just a little over 7%. They're growing their dividend at a rate of about 3% per year. And the way we look at that is really, you know, in terms of a return, a total return expectation. So, your, your dividend plus capital appreciation. If you're paying about a 7% yield, you're growing your dividend at about 3%. We would say, you know, a, a reasonable expectation would be 10% average return over time if they're able to maintain that, um, that growth rate. So, you know, this is a situation where for a lot of these companies like Pembina or Enbridge, you are certainly, you're, you're getting a decent return over time or you should get a decent return over time. Most of that is going to be in the in the income return. So we're largely looking at these as, as income investments right now. Um, in terms of how they compete with bonds, well, you know, bonds provide much nicer yields now than they have in the past. But one of the things that these dividend payers provide that bonds do not is they are able to produce consistent and stable growth in their dividends over time. This is not something that bonds provide. There is also the potential for some capital appreciation in the uh, in these dividend pairs as well. Now, one of the main differences that I would just highlight between Pembina 
and Enbridge is that Enbridge is just, it's a much larger, it's a more diversified company. It's not just focused in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. Um, they have, although it's a small portion of their business right now, they have more opportunities to uh, invest in like, say, renewable power growth and other areas, um, which is something that they want to focus on in the future. But it's very much, Enbridge is very much a North American diversified energy infrastructure company, uh, whereas Pembina is more focused in, in Western Canada. So, um, you know, if you're looking for uh, a nice yield um, and you have moderate capital appreciation, capital appreciation expectations, then these are the types of companies you can look at. Our favorite between the two is Enbridge, but um, that really comes down to just it being a more diversified and larger company. Yeah, I think it's a good summary. I think you kind of summed it up right at the end there, which we would prefer. And, you know, it comes down to if you're getting that yield. I mean, there's not a ton of growth in these businesses. You know, you're getting nope. a good per percentage of your return from the yield. And, uh, you know, the more diversified business may be the better bet in that case, right? So, yeah. All right, let's, uh, did you guys have any comments on that or you want to just move to uh, Brett's Pluralock? It's all good. All right, we're good. Let's go to Pluralock. All right, yeah. I believe you answered a question on this. It was the December period, time period last year. Was it in that? Yeah, range? it was, uh, I think, mid-December. So about seven yeah. months ago from the time okay. recording. Yeah. 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 So, so we'll so, check we in again. Question. Yeah, we got another question uh, from uh, Garrett. He asked, uh, Pluralock seems like it has a good product, but annoyingly, it keeps issuing more stock, diluting its value. We looked at this co company, like Ryan said last year, we had very similar conclusion to the comments that uh, Garrett had. But let's really look through what's changed over the last seven months. And if you don't know, Pluralock Security, symbol PLUR on the TSX Venture. Pluralock Security Inc. is an identity-centric cybersecurity company that reduces or eliminates the need for passwords by measuring the pace, rhythm, and cadence of users' keystrokes con to confirm their identities. They operate in a highly regulated industry, including healthcare, critical infrastructure, government and defense, and as well, financial services. The stock is currently trading at 14 cents and a half at a market cap of 10 million and is up three and a half percent year to date, effectively flat, depending on the exact trading price of the day. So a quick rundown of Q1 2023, their last quarter that they've reported revenue was up to 15.8 million from 7 million, a massive increase of 127%, but that's just largely due to they had two acquisitions within the year, as well as they do have a lot of fluctuation quarter over quarter because they're largely contract based. So if you look quarter over quarter, you'll see really big variations and that should be expected going forward if you are looking at this company. 79% of the revenue did come from hardware and system sales, with 70% from software, license, and maintenance sales, while the remaining 4% from professional services. That's a big uh, decrease from or their hardware and system sales, which are more one-off in nature, which is a bit good, good to see. As well, you can see that reflecting their gross margin, which has been improving. Q1 coming in at 13.6%, which is quite a bit higher than previous years. Last year, it had a 6.6%. The increases. Due, like I said, to the revenue mix as more revenue came from that software license, maintenance, sales, and professional service segments, which, of course, produces higher margin than hardware. However, profitability is still just poor. Pluralock had operating loss of $1.2 which is an improvement from a loss of $2.2 a net loss of $1.4 an improvement from $2.4 and on a non-gap basis, adjusted EBITDA was a loss of $1 million compared to $1.9. So improving, but still a loss across the board, regardless of what metric you're looking at. 
Locke does have a cap a cash position of 1.4 million. That's including the restricted cash, but a net debt position of 1.9 million at this time. And they've actually paid off quite a bit of that over the last quarter. But like Garrett was commenting on, dilution is still occurring just regularly. At the end of Q1 2022, so about a year and a half ago, the company had 70.3 million basic shares outstanding. Now at the end of Q1 2023, they have 87.3 million outstanding. So at the end of the quarter, so that'll be a year over year at that point, is a 24.3% increase. Some of the share dilution was related to acquisitions, but even taking that out, you're at 19% dilution year over year if they didn't acquire anything at all. So that's substantial to say the least. Further, the company has 13.5 million of stock options outstanding and 13 more million uh, in warrants outstanding at the end of the quarter. But that's not the end of the dilution. In June, the company placed another 5.3 million units which is one share and one warrant in one transaction. And then they did a concurrent transaction with another private placement of another 4.9 million units. Both those transactions sold the shares at 14 and a half cents, the current market price. But they also had the warrants, which had a strike price of 20 cents. So even if you were to see the stock price rise, you would see further dilution once it passed that 20 cent marks. And we're just seeing constant dilution. And that's how they're funding. So really, that's why they're diluting their shares is they need they need cash over and over again. The last quarter did have positive operating cash flow, but this was really just due to working capital changes, specifically an increase of accounts payable, which will need to be paid at some court at some point in the future before the working capital changes, which we can see here. Blurlock had a cash deficit of 1.2 million during the quarter. So in reality, when you're ignoring the, the exact timing of payments and working capital shifts, the company has been consistently cash flow negative. So they need to raise money through either debt or equity. And as interest rates have rose and rose and rose, every company are pretty much in this position is starting to shift to the equity financing. So they do have a outstanding uh, line of credit, which they did pay down during the last quarter. And then they've actually, I think, shifted that out into equity financing as well. And therefore, some of the dilution. As well, it would not surprise me the reason for the recent financing in June is they're paying down that accounts payable, which ran up over the last quarter to make the cash flow seemingly be positive. But of course, it's not really. It's just really an accounting uh, cash flow positive situation. So Arte, the company is just far from any sort of recommendation this time. Yes, the revenue growth is good, but it does not make a company investable just off revenue growth. We've said this time and time again, you need the profitability, you need positive cash flows to become investable. They need to start producing cash flows from operations so they can stop this spiral, this death spiral, I should really say, of dilution. If both share replacements take close in the quarter, you'll see double-digit percentage share count increase just during Q2. That's just massive. If you're losing 10% of your effective share value quarter over quarter, that adds up very, very quick. You end up doing a rollback and you have 10 shares instead of 100 shares by the end of the year once they've rolled it back. And you've lost 90% of your value, most likely at that point. They're just not investable at this point. They need to get the cash flows. They need to get back on track before, even if they do have a good, eventually uh, financially investable product. This At this time, the dilution just makes it so you can't. And I really want to drill that in is... You need to look at the financials. You need to see them start converting before you can really invest in the company, regardless of if the product is innovative or not. Yeah. And this is why, you know, people often don't get the whole idea of why we look at profitability as a minimum criteria in a company. And that's because, you know, at the very least, you should understand what the road to profitability is clearly, because if a company isn't generating 
profit from operations and that means they need to raise money from you have debt to fund it somehow, right? yeah, yeah. just to finance yeah. their expenses right and like you could have a profitable company that issues shares or takes on debt for growth projects um but when you have to take on when you have to issue shares just to essentially keep the lights on that's that's an issue that's not sustainable and we want to invest in sustainable businesses so you know in some cases there is a pathway that's clear to see to profitability but it is an issue that a lot of investors don't focus on the profitability at all. And, you know, if, if you are putting your money in a highly speculative company that doesn't have profits, doesn't even have revenue in some cases, or minimal revenue, you have absolutely no idea what the share count is going to look like by the time and what percentage of the company you're going to own um, by the time it actually, you know, makes that transition into net earnings, if it ever does. Yeah. I mean, and it's a shame in this case, like the, the trailing 12 months revenue, 73.4 million. Uh, if you go back to December, 2022, it was like half a, like a half a million. So they, you know, tremendous growth in revenues and largely, you know, made by acquisition, but the price to sales on this business is 0.15. That just tells you like, if they could get any margin, like they need to get a good margin, but you got any margin out of this business, but that's why you trade at a, a point one five times sales like it's just uh the, the business continues to dilute to keep the lights on uh going forward and keep funding any type of growth and uh you know you you don't see near term you don't see a path towards significant profitability and the path that we would chart at this point uh would be at some point there'll be a rollback or a consolidation of shares and that's you know because you're raising money at 14 cents or in that range and that, you know it just at some point, you ought to issue so many shares just to, just to you know, create any cash into the business from those shares. So, at some point, that's what I would see for the business. You know, I'm not close to it or anything like that, but that's what I would see happening. And and then you and then you do a rollback, and then you know, over that period, can you trust that management will continue to be good stewards, uh, mind the store in terms of a capital structure? And you know, at present. The revenues are growing, but Aaron said, if you don't have a discipline for profitability, um, there is really no investment case in the business until you get that. And, and the market sees that because look at the share yeah, price performance over the last two years, right? In spite yeah. of that impressive revenue growth, the market is concerned that it's That's why you're at 0.15 times sales. Like that is a massively low multiple to sales, but the market is not buying that those sales are going to lead to any cash flow, which you need to drive the share price higher. And the only way you'd trade at such a low multiple to sales is if you have a low margin or no margin business. And right now it's a no margin business, to be honest. So, yeah. okay, we'll move on. I, I mean, again, there's far worse companies out there. So, like they've at least garnered some sales, but you know, you need that profitability and we want to invest in profitable businesses. And that's why you see the share price slump because there is no profitability and we keep hammering that, but we will. And Brennan, you got something on Carnival Corporation. We had a discussion this morning on cruises. Brennan apparently just absolutely hates them, thinks that anybody who takes a cruise no, is a no. degenerate and shouldn't be. I'm just kidding, but... Uh, he, you've never been on a cruise though. So I've never been on Brennan a cruise. only took that position when he realized that, you, that, that you've taken a couple cruises. That's true. It's true. Precisely. Another, so Anything precisely. that I do. 
then is and a long time ex girlfriend used to love cruises, so maybe it's it's tainted in my view. It could be the hate That's for why the they broke up. Brad wouldn't take her on a cruise. <laughs> yeah, probably it. It's probably I'm confused it. out of principle. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, like I uh, love you. Just take me on a cruise. Never, never, never. never. I'm not going <laughs> on a boat. Anyways, uh, so Carnival Cruise, uh, or Carnival Corporation, sorry, CCL on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, we got a question from Jeff, and he says Carnival Cruise reports earnings next week. The stock is still depressed since the pandemic drop. Do you think there is an opportunity? Um, so yes, the stock is down about 70% since January of 2020, uh, where it essentially halted operations and cut its dividend due to the pandemic, of course. And today, which is, uh, June 26th is uh, the time that we're recording this. Uh, the stock is down about 7% right now following its recent, uh, Q2, uh, 2023 earnings results. Um, but earlier this morning it was down 11%, uh, but so, so it has recovered, uh, slightly. Um, and right now it's trading at a price of about $14.65 and has about a $20 billion market cap. So Carnival Corporation operates a fleet of more than 90 ships, which visit approximately 700 ports under AIDA Cruises, Carnival Cruise Line, uh, Costa Cruises, Canard, uh, Holland America Line, Princess Cruises, P&O Cruises in Australia and the UK, as well as its Seabourne brand names. So. Uh, looking at the financials for Q2 2023, which drove the stock lower today, um, but keep in mind uh, the comparables that we're going off of from 2022 remain depressed. So this growth is kind of one off. Um, but revenue came in at about 4.9 billion, which was an increase of over 100%, uh, but was an all time second quarter record for the company. So even though they are seeing that huge uh, jump because of you know depressed comparables, they still did have a second quarter. Uh, record, which was good. Adjusted EBITDA was 681 million, which was a substantial increase from a loss of about 928 million in the same period last year. Adjusted EPS was a loss of 31 cents compared to a loss of $1.64 last year. And while the company is still losing money, uh, customer bookings continue to, to show positive momentum, reaching an all-time high of $7.2 billion uh, and surpasses the previous record of about $6 billion reached in 2019. Uh, and you can see the company really, they're always comparing back to 2019, of course, which was when normalized times were. Um, so looking at the balance sheet, uh, they have about $30.6 in net debt with about 80% of that debt being fixed rates and the rest at floating rates. And the company has a forward net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 7.3 times and a trailing 12-month times interest earned ratio of about 0.7 times, which is a bit of a concern because it remains under one. And just to look at the company's 2023 guidance, which I also have up on the screen here, uh, it does look promising as the company is projecting to get back into positive EBITDA for the year, but adjusted earnings remain negative. And if we use the adjusted EBITDA guidance, the stock continues to trade at about 12 times its high end of EBITDA guidance. And to put this into perspective, uh, you know, that midpoint there about the 4.2 billion in adjusted EBITDA that they're anticipating um, in 2019, uh, they actually ended up doing, I believe, about a five and a half uh, billion uh, in EBITDA at that time. Um, now, the reason I believe the stock is actually down uh, in the trading session today uh, is because in the near term, CEO Josh Weinstein noted that high labor fuel costs and marketing costs are still facing uh, the company. Um, so that is a bit of a concern here. Now, 
the company also released a few uh, targets. So they introduced its sea change program with a, a few strategic objectives going forward to 2026, which include more than 20% reduction in carbon intensity compared to 2019. Uh, so they're trying to reduce their carbon footprint. 50% uh, increase in adjusted EBITDA compared to, to their 2023 June guidance, which I had up on the screen previously, um, which represents the highest level in almost two decades if they can achieve it. Adjusted return on invested capital of about 12%. And these estimates are based on net capacity growth of less than 2.5% compounded annually from 2023. And by the end of 2026, the company is expecting to approach investment grade leverage metrics as both Moody's and S&P had downgraded them to non-investment grade uh, following the pandemic. So to conclude, overall, I think that Carnival Corporation is in the right direction as the financials appear to be on the path to returning to pre-pandemic levels with bookings increasing to record levels and the company beating its Q2 guidance. But the company still has a lot of work to do as its profitability remains depressed and has a very levered balance sheet, which is a concern. And given the elevated debt levels and continued cost pressures, I do not believe that the stock would be worth an investment at this time, at least not until they can pay down a significant portion of their debt and show that they can continue to achieve their profitability targets going forward. And just on my note, um, you know, I would never go on a cruise personally. Um, so I don't think that I would invest in a cruise company unless they had, you know, 20% growth at 10 times earnings, uh, then I couldn't turn it down. But uh, at this point in time, I would not invest in Carnival. Okay. Good assessment. That's a massive bias. I don't know what we can say there. It is a bias. I will say it is a bias <laughs> and it's uh, it's an unreasonable bias. I Brandon, don't know it's not about seven times. You, you got to be open-minded. <laughs> yeah, it's not about the debt. It's all about just... Uh, no. You know, what's interesting to, to me is that bookings are at a record, even a pre-pandemic record, yet they're still yeah. not making money, yeah. right? And yeah. they can't really add more debt. They don't want to issue shares at, um, or shouldn't add more debt rather. They don't want, they probably don't want to issue shares at the current price. Yeah. So it's yeah. just, it's not a, plus we're in a situation where, I mean, we are in uncertain economic times, potentially entering into recessionary times. How does that? impact their business if they can't get profitability with record bookings now i mean what's what's it going to look yeah. like when, when despite like a, a bit of a denial from the average consumer like inflation has squeezed disposable income and you know cruises are part of disposable income you know they should be facing a tougher time over the next 18 months than they likely faced over the past year so uh, in terms of, you know, everybody just had just got back to traveling, was clamoring to go somewhere. Generally, um, there are, are cruises, people that still don't want to cruise right now. So maybe are they cruises get some like more cost effective ways to travel. Technically, again, you're talking depending on, I mean, there's cruise uh, A, yeah, cruise B depends. are completely different. Because you guys completely. have been on some cruises before. And even, yeah. you know, I will say Ryan even kind of convinced me that I think a Mediterranean cruise actually would be cool because I love history. Well, he's backtracking. Be kind of I don't know if I would say that they're, they're costs. They're, no. they're more cost effective. Okay. I mean, you can spend a lot of money on a cruise. Yeah, yeah that's what you I mean. Cruise A to cruise B is completely relatively different. cheap if you want to, you know, eat, stay in hostels or you can travel Europe, you know, for 
at any price. And you right? can be in a so balcony like, room versus inside room versus yeah. suite versus like there is a, Fair you enough. can spend unlimited amount on a cruise. You can spend unlimited amount on a hotel in a certain country. One thing too, I will say is that if you're, if you know what to do, I yeah. have like, you can get good deals on cruises. So in some cases, maybe it is more cost. Yeah, we've always gotten good deals. It's a great way if you've like never been to Europe or through the Mediterranean. Like we saw 11 countries in like a few weeks. And like then you can maybe pick out one that you like, oh, I really love this country. Then we can go back and, you know, spend, uh, you know, a couple weeks there, a week there, whatever you want to do. If you went and said, I'm going to commit, I'm going to spend two weeks in country X and you got there and you said, this sucks. That would suck, right? So, I mean, it is a way to kind of sample it's like going to a buffet and then you pick out, I like, you know, Mexican food or something. And then you're going to go to a Mexican restaurant, right? Brennan? I think so the, uh, try it. the other problem is, is I'm such a nervous Nelly that uh, I think I'd be scared to leave the boat because I don't know if I'd make it back to the boat in time. <laughs> oh, this is true. <laughs> this is so true. Like we'll get to any city, like an analyst city and Brenny's look. So when do we have to go to the airport? It's like, it's five days from now. No, okay. One of the good I'm, things I'm packing if you're in Europe, if you, you, you miss unpack. the boat, is you can always just go to the next port. Like yeah. you can get there pretty quickly. That's I doubt it's that Brennan far away. would just It'll throw himself in the water before that you know, happened. But, I'm yeah, done. I mean, if you're doing like, a, I don't know, a cruise around Asia and like this is the last. Yeah, yeah, you're done. You know, I was bored before you head back to North America. Well, I will no, say it's... Uh, uh, this is a little shot at myself. My first time in Vegas, I was scared to leave the uh, the hotel room because I thought I was going to get lost in the casinos. Oh, yeah. I love making fun of myself. <laughs> wow. It's, <good. laughs> it's a true story, if though. You can't do it, right? Uh, yeah. All right. That's good. All right. Well, that's going to end off right. our show this week. Uh, keep, if you want us to keep putting out this content, like us on iTunes. If you're listening to this, rate and review us on there. If you uh, are viewing this, uh, smash that subscribe button on YouTube and uh, we'll continue to put that out. Keep your questions coming in for our, your stock, our take, and we'll keep answering them every week. And as always, I wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you.